Hello and welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, it's a Climate Finance Week special and we're honing in on the role of individual investors in the net zero transition with experts from the Global Returns Project, Crowdcube and Circa 5000. Yes, hello and welcome along to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast brought to you live from this heatwave that we're having in the UK and live from ED's virtual offices today. You're currently listening to the voice of ED's senior reporter Sarah George and joining me virtually is ED's content editor Matt Mace. Hi Matt, how are you? Yes, good, thank you. Surviving the, the heat, I suppose the benefit of living in an old house is they're actually quite cool. Um, in the summer and a little bit more leaky I suppose in the in the winter so I can join the benefits while I can now. Yeah I'm kind of glad that it's virtual though because I know you haven't been particularly well lately. Yeah I had a pretty rough week last week um, I, won't, <laughs> I won't go into details no one needs to hear that but uh, on the mend feeling much better now. Good well rather selfishly I'm still going to keep apart from you for a few more days um and but but happy to have some time in virtually for today's crucial topic of climate finance um and there's a lot to explore here but before i do i'm going to get straight on with addressing the elephant in the room um which is that our last episode episode 118 was broadcast on monday the 11th of july um, and we said it'd be the last one for several weeks as we prep for a podcast relaunch that we needed some space to get a new sofa, a new studio, new logo, new jingle, new guests, maybe even a new co-host. Um, and I want you to rest assured that we still have all of that planned. But just like Ross and Rachel and friends, we don't really have a clear cut definition of being on a break. Um, we couldn't resist popping back briefly for an episode to mark our climate finance week. Um, And this is our week long editorial campaign that's been running from July 18th to 22nd for 2022 in association with Inspired Energy. So we've spent the past five days supporting sustainability professionals, CSOs, business leaders and everyone else in the financial community on their shared mission to mobilise finance for a sustainable future. And that mission seems to have been louder and faster and hopefully a bit more joined up than ever before over the past two years or so. We've got initiatives like the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, now covering 130 trillion of assets under management. So that's more than a third of the global total. And they're in the headlines more and more as as well. Governments are getting involved too. This isn't just a private sector thing. We're looking at more and more initiatives like green bond launches and climate risk disclosure mandates. But McKinsey estimates that spending on physical assets alone on the course to net zero by 2050 will need 275 trillion to be invested against a 2019 baseline. Of course, not getting there would cost a lot more in terms of crystallising risks, which I've seen called the cost of not not zero this week, which I really like. Um, And Deloitte has priced the cost of not zero as 178 trillion off the global economy by 27, cascading thereafter in a three degree temperature increase scenario. But in a 1.5 C aligned scenario, Deloitte estimates a 47 trillion economic gain. 
So however you slice it, there's a big financing gap. Public and private finance is still flowing at a pace to activities incompatible with a sustainable future. So that's some scene setting from me. Um, but Matt, I feel like you're also very qualified to set the scene because you've been leading on the creation of our new climate finance primer report, which is now available to download on the site. So I'd love to hear about the process of creating that and whether in researching that there were some key findings or learnings that, that stopped you in your tracks a bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the climate finance primer report is a, is a revamp on last year's version. We did one um, about the key, the five kind of key themes that the, the COP26 presidency unit had highlighted um, to discuss as key to the negotiations at Glasgow. Um, and finance was obviously one of the key ones there. Um, a lot was agreed. A lot was not agreed at COP26 um, through that pact. The um, the reaffirmation of the annual $100 billion uh, to developing nations um, was kind of the main one, the loss and damage facilities, another one as well. Um, again, there's still a lot of question marks. Um, when I was writing this, nothing that was asked kind of going into COP26 was definitively answered. They kind of just said, yes, we'll do it and we'll do it with more ambition and better timelines. But there's no real reporting on it as yet there's no kind of assurances that the money that's going to be provided that's crucial for those developing nations to kind of invest in some leapfrog solutions in low carbon tech and innovation to ensure that they're not funneling into fossil fuels um there's no assurances that that, that money yet is going to kind of be in the form of grants rather than repayable loans which is about what 95 percent of global climate finance at a kind of multinational level is right now um they've said that they won't but there's no there's no kind of mechanisms in place just yet so so it's, it's kind of a lot of the same but um as we kind of build towards cop 27 uh in egypt the the egyptian presidency team are very much focused on climate finance and making sure that finance is the right type so i think we'll see some um in the same way that post paris agreement we were looking at the Paris Agreement rulebook. We're almost looking at kind of like a, I suppose, a Glasgow rulebook, certainly around finance at least, to make sure that that's all um, right and in place. And I, and I think just, just generally, one thing I've noticed is that there's this, but there is this real uptick, as you mentioned, and there's a lot of initiatives going on. Um, and you know, ED have been writing about corporate sustainability. You know, that's what we're founded on. So more than 30 years now, we've been doing that. Um, and We've probably been writing about climate finance for four years, um, maybe a little bit more, but very, I think kind of 2018 was when we really started to kind of get a lot come in around finance initiatives to the point where we actually wrote an article about it going mainstream. And I think it has, a lot, a lot of investors are focusing on it. The fact remains, um, however, that that green finance market has grown by more than a hundredfold over the last decade alone, but it's such a small slice of the overall financial markets four percent um i think that was bloomberg um bloomberg neff that kind of um found that out so we're talking about a green economy and how much needs to get funneled into it and four percent of the global financial market is green and you know we've seen in the uk a net zero transition doesn't have to cost the, the earth you know the i can't remember what the latest trajectories was but it was around kind of one to two percent maybe even less than one percent for of, of gdp for for that transition so it's um it's it's like this just constantly moving puzzle green finance uh in terms of 
how much there is, how it's been provided, what the paybacks are, what the parameters are. Um, but I think it's such an exciting area. The fact that we're having climate finance weeks at ED is 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 testament to that. You know, we we've done circular economy weeks for ages, or, or circular economy themed bits of content. We wouldn't be able to host a climate finance event two or three years ago. The 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 market between our audience and the investor community just wasn't quite there. There was that chasm there. As as businesses and investors bridge that gap, you know the the way that finance is is spent and the way that data plays a role in that is only going to get better. So it's um it's an exciting area to watch, but there's still so much that needs to be done. Yeah, definitely. Um, I like the puzzle metaphor that you use, Matt, because it's such a huge topic that actually you need many people to put together um, the puzzle to make sure that the final picture is one of a just transition to a net zero world. So working on on that puzzle, you'll have, as you mentioned, the international public finance mechanisms like agreements made at COP. You'll have national development banks and government departments, national and subnational. All of those are involved in the COP process. Um, but then equally, you'll have corporates, SMEs, individuals, stock markets, banks, insurers, reinsurers, parliamentary groups, academics, um, and goodness knows how many other people all with their hands on that puzzle. Um, so there were several different topics that we could have um, theme today's episode on um, really. So to zoom in at one specific part of that metaphorical puzzle table, um, we'll be looking at the role that individuals can play in investing in a sustainable future. Um, but we'll still be keeping it existential with some great questions like what does good impact investing look like when we are in a climate crisis? Should we even be investing for financial returns for ourselves? Or if we're able to, should we look at some other ways of measuring success? And how do we empower individuals when we hear figures like those that Matt just said, hundredfold increase, trillions of dollars, gigatons of emissions? Um, and first up to help us answer some of these questions is Jack Chelman, who is the head of strategy and comms at the Global Returns Project. For those unfamiliar with the project, it is a not-for-profit that runs an investment portfolio supporting climate solutions that might otherwise have challenges accessing finance. So think of solutions provided by other not-for-profits, often projects that generate great benefits for people and planet, but not necessarily short-term major returns. So maybe community projects working to restore nature, avoid pollution, clean air or generate renewables. Um, so that's why the project exists, to help shift thinking away from short term financial returns towards global returns, benefits for people and planet that might play out in the medium or long term, but that ultimately de-risk all human activity, including that that is investable. So Jack does a really great job of explaining this better than me. So I'm segueing rapidly into that talk with him in full. Hello, Jack. It is a pleasure to have you on to the ED podcast today. Um, how are you and whereabouts are you dialing in from today? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm well. I'm a little warm in this London heat wave, um, but I'm I'm fine. I'm, I'm dialing in from London. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time and hopefully we can get through all the points we want to talk about before we both melt into a puddle need to be put in ice. Um, I know that I've worked with the Global Returns Project um, before, but for anyone that's listening and might not be aware of the project, would you mind giving us a little introduction? I'm, sh I'm sure you'd be better at that than me. Happily. So, I mean, we're a UK registered climate charity, first off, and we're really thinking about 
fundamental change in financial services. So moving from sustainability alone to something entirely new. And where we start from with that idea is the concept that sustainable investing is obviously critically important, but that even very good sustainable investing has a hard time getting to certain really important climate solutions. So these are things like suing polluters, protecting rainforests, even defending whales, which are an important carbon sequester in marine environments. Um, it also includes more systemic solutions like advocacy and policy work. Now, obviously, we need to be doing these things if we're going to tackle the climate crisis effectively. But the problem is that, you know, by and large, these are non-market activities. And so it's really hard for even very good sustainable investing to get to them. And of course, then the question is, well, well who does get to them? And our message is, well, by and large, it's not-for-profit organizations that are tackling the climate crisis. Um, what we say is not-for-profits don't generate wealth, but they do regenerate the planet beyond the capacity of even very good sustainable investing. And so while not-for-profits don't give you a financial return, they give you something that's real and identifiable, which is what we call a global return, it's where our name comes from. Um, and, and that's just our term for enhancing and protecting the biosphere. And, and our message is that all of our investments are less risky when you enhance and protect the biosphere. So that's a long way of saying, you know, we're trying to make not-for-profit climate organizations a part of normal business for investors and advisors and fund managers and the like. And the way that we're trying to do that is we curate a portfolio, which we call the Global Returns Portfolio. And that's a selection of diverse, effective, and scalable not-for-profit organizations that are tackling climate change and curated by experts like an investment fund. And, and so we're trying to make that portfolio you know, a part of normal business for financial services. Um, and, and if I can just add one last point, you know, I sort of said this is fundamental change. And what we mean by that is when you make not-for-profits a part of normal business, when you incorporate this direct regenerative activity into your, your asset allocation and your fund management and the like, that, that really goes beyond sustainability. And what we call that is symbiosis because you're creating this mutually beneficial relationship between the economy and the environment. Great, well, that all sounds super exciting. And I, I wanted to come on to how exactly you curate a portfolio that does that. But before I do that, I did want to um, learn a bit of your, about yourself, Jack. I know I spoke to Jan, um, Sudersky last time I spoke to the to the project so yeah how long have you been involved in the project and what sort of inspired you to get get into this space? Yeah absolutely so um, as you might tell from my American twang I am um, originally from just outside Washington DC and um, I came to the UK on a two-year Marshall scholarship um, starting in 
2018. I did postgraduate programs through that scholarship. Um, and then when I was finished, I joined the Global Returns Project pretty much right away in September 2020. Um, and I think I was just, I mean, aside from wanting to get involved in climate in general, I was really attracted by this idea of, you know, bringing about something systemic, something that's that's a big change through pretty simple mechanism, you know, by making this portfolio normal for people. That's not, you know, you know, massively complicated, but we do think it it leads to something systemic. So I thought that was really um, intriguing. Definitely. And let's let's dive into into this portfolio. Um, so as I mentioned, all of this sounds super exciting, but obviously the cynic in me says, well, how can you be sure that a project has a regenerative impact? How do you measure that? How do you know if it's delivering the global returns that we promise? Because as you mentioned, sustainable finance is great, um, but sometimes it can be hard to measure what is sustainable or something will be marked as sustainable um, and something will happen that mean it doesn't deliver its promised impact. So how do you curate an effective portfolio? Absolutely, absolutely fair question. I mean, what we start with is that we're trying to apply a fund management approach to this kind of organization as much as we can. And so, you know, what that means is we're trying to select and assess these not-for-profit organizations like a fund manager would. So we have a technical advisory board, um, which for us is composed of um, internationally recognized climate scientists. They've helped us put together our own methodology for selecting and assessing this kind of organization. And we apply that methodology when we're selecting the organizations, but also, I mean, just as you would expect to find out how your normal portfolio is performing, we report on the performance of our portfolio every six months by reapplying that methodology. And obviously, you know, we can go into more detail on the methodology, but, you know, the basics is after an organization passes a series of governance and sizing gates, when we're considering it, um, we assess the organizations according to four factors, impact, scalability, networks, and co-benefits. That's sort of the core framework for our methodology. That makes sense. Um, and obviously, I'm coming at this as someone without a, a financial um, background. So really interesting to to hear about that. Um, and I wanted to dive into um, a bit with with that reporting that you you mentioned. Obviously, people that invest in these sort of things want the numbers, want the disclosures, um, want the updates. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing investors asking for a lot more information about some things like climate risk, other ESG risks as metrics um, evolve for that. So how how does the discussion about global returns intersect um, with with some of some of that? I'd say that what we've been talking about is really looking at um, opportunity. Um, but you did mention as well that obviously any investment gets more risky if we have a world where we're not backing global returns. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think what we're saying First of all, as I mentioned before, a big part of our message is all of our investments are less risky when we enhance and protect the biosphere. And I think the, the, the underlying assertion there is that, you know, if you think about how you normally or traditionally would think about measuring risk for a portfolio, you look at 
historical variants for that portfolio. And what we're saying, and frankly, what you know, scientists are saying too, is that the basis of performance has changed and, and is changing in the future because of the climate emergency. And so as a result, you have to take new factors into account when you're undergoing these, these processes. And, and those new factors are risks to our earth systems. So that's really what we're doing is we're saying, you know, by regenerating those earth systems, that is, you know, responding to the reality of our climate emergency and how it intersects with these more traditional ways of, of looking at risk. That makes sense. And as, as well as risk, obviously, we need to keep an eye on opportunity so we don't just get too um, caught up in, in doom. And just as climate risk reporting has become more popular, um, yeah, a lot of people are looking for new ways to measure benefits. So not just financial returns, um, but maybe nature-based solutions metrics or carbon sequestration um, metrics. So what's the difference between investing to yeah get X amount of carbon sequestration or X amount of nature-based solution benefit versus investing for a global return? Well, Sarah, I think an important thing to say is a big part of our process is treating these not-for-profit organizations like a form of asset class. So we are really committed to that sort of framework. And what we're saying is the difference is not you know, treating it like an asset class and, and not doing so. It's saying within those things that you look at as assets, thinking about returns differently. So saying that some things give you a financial return and others give you a global return, which is not financial, you know, but as I said, is is real and identifiable and critically important. So, you know, what we're saying is it is it's just really hard to monetize everything. You know, there are certain critical climate solutions that you just have so much trouble monetizing, but that doesn't mean that you can't treat them, you know, like a quote unquote asset class. And it doesn't mean they can't be a part of normal business for investors. And, and you mentioned that ultimately getting to a place where this is supported at scale will take fundamental change um, at the moment. Um, it can be tempting working in finance to assign a value to everything, to say that that might be the right thing um, to do. But as, as you mentioned, that that's not possible um, for everything. Um, Nonetheless, it looks like we're moving past, in some cases, this this look for value and this look for risk and and everything needing to be um, quantitative and and short term. Um, and I know there's been a busy time for the project. Um, lots of new partnerships. You kindly sent me a list ahead of time. Um, partnerships with organisations including fund managers, wealth managers, venture capital initiatives, consultancies. Um, so, do you think the shift is coming? The shift away from investing purely for financial returns of needing to measure everything and have it have it being short term? Well, Sarah, I mean, short answer, yes. I mean, at least we think the shift is is starting um, and we are really excited about, you know, this recent progress that we've had and the recent examples of the industry taking this seriously. Um, you know, a, a big part of what we're saying is it's tackling the climate crisis and, and undergoing these regenerative activities, it's not just 
the right thing to do, though of course it is the right thing, it is a rational investment decision. And so when you see more and more firms or, or types of organizations coming on board with this concept, it really validates that idea that this is just a normal and, and rational thing to do. Um, I think it's probably worth just highlighting a couple examples of, of who we're working with, because I think the implementation is really interesting. You know, on the on the wealth manager side, we have um, groups like Leading Edge Wealth Planning, and actually just as of last week, Pangea Impact Investments, um, who are coming out and partnering with us and saying they're going to incorporate the global returns portfolio into their offering to clients. Um, we have an impact investing app, which is um, set to be launched in, I think, about six months called EnviroVest, which is planning to make contributions to our portfolio normal for all their users. Um, we have on the fund management side, um, TT International, which is a UK fund manager, and they've embedded a contribution to the portfolio into the fee structure of their environmental solutions fund. And there's a really interesting, as you mentioned, a venture capital implication. Um, we have Saris Select Capital, which has come out and said that they're pledging 5% of the generated carry on all future deals to our portfolio as well. And the last example I'll give, because um, I think it's a particularly interesting one, is actually sort of on the business side. We have a, a fund manager in the UK, which is contributing every year to our portfolio as an alternative to carbon offsetting. And this is something that we're really thinking about a lot more as well for other corporate teams as well. Um, what, what this fund manager said is, you know, they, they wanted to um, deal with historic emissions. They were looking at um, the, the offset market and they said, you know, offsets can be very good, but we want to address something that is more systemic and so they priced their historic emissions and they contributed that amount to our portfolio and they're going to do that every year and so that to us is a really interesting sign that that the portfolio has implications for corporates as well as an alternative or even more likely as a complement you know when you're looking at purchasing offsets as a complement to that kind of purchase that is so fascinating as someone that works mainly with businesses yeah offsetting is something we're seeing businesses grapple with a lot um, either to deal with their historic emissions or to deal with emissions now and when is the right time and can we afford this with the market in the future market um, yeah so lots of food for thought there um, Jack and that perhaps warrants its own separate episode but I'm aware we're coming to the end of our call for today um, so I should probably let you get going and thank you so much for yeah letting us into the world of the Global Returns Project. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. Fantastic to speak with you and um, stay cool as well. <laughs> thank you to Jack once again for your time on the podcast. And and yeah, definitely a bit of an existential question that we tackled in that interview. How do we even go about measuring and defining returns on a warming planet? And who should pay for that stuff that needs the investing in but won't get financial returns from in the short term if we are in a just transition? Um, all of this is not to say that sustainability is in any case completely at odds with profitability. 
Um, and I wanted to come back to you to get your thoughts on this, Matt. So I started at ED in 2018. And at that point, I saw some of our audience coming to us and saying, oh, my CEO still thinks that sustainability isn't profitable. It doesn't matter how much we avoid in terms of energy and materials costs or how many innovation opportunities we have. The upfront cost is too high. Sustainability is not profitable. Um, given that you've been here a bit longer than me, is that something that you've seen a bit more of in, in your time? I mean, yeah, the the sustainability, arguably one of the most siloed functions of, of all of them, mainly because of its infancy in comparison to kind of more traditional um, departments, finance, uh, procurement, HR, for example. And I think sustainability for a lot of businesses is probably a spin-off of HR and they kind of put the nice stuff in there before it's kind of it got to the point now where it's not a nice to have, it's a necessity. So I think a lot of businesses are looking at that. that, that there's no buy-in and buy-in is probably the, the actual literal word for this in terms of climate finance. Uh, there's no buy-in for it. But um, I think what we've seen from when we've interviewed the kind of those in the kind of vanguard, you know, you Unilever's, you, you, you your BTs, is that they have got that door open they have got that buy-in and I think you can look at it through two ways you can look at it through risk mitigation and the fact that you know look at the heat wave room right now many kind of offices are actually having to close because it's just not safe working conditions and that's a loss to uh, not so much now because people can work from home flexibly but for a lot of you know not everyone can do that and if you can't have your, your staff into your office or into the work environment that's a loss so you can look at it through uh, risk mitigation you can look at it through kind of impending legislation and the fact that certainly in the UK climate is pretty much getting embedded into the heart of big um, big policy levers and we've got the mandate coming up on, on TCD report and alignment so you want to get ahead of the curve of that so you're not hit with fines that's another way of looking at it um, and another risk you want to take is you know don't get behind the curve and competitive advantage you look at um, transport you look at uh, food and the early movers there and what they've done certainly around electric vehicles and the, the kind of the the transport market's completely different to what it was kind of three or four years ago because those disruptors like Tesla and then the early movers like Nissan and now Ford are, are kind of completely reevaluating their business model based on the opportunities of doing so and also the risks of, of inaction so it's that counterbalance always and it's happening now with the kind of alternate proteins market the the kind of plant-based and half of it comes from this is good for the planet and half of it comes from this is good for our bottom line at the end of the day and there's no real issue in going down either of those whatever kind of resonates the the, the thing that i've with the conversation i've always had about sustainability professionals is how do you translate the urgency into a way that resonates and some people don't want to hear about doom and gloom surrounding the climate emergency so if you can paint the need to invest in green solutions as a kind of competitive drive or a reputational benefit that kind of improves staff retention there's, there's loads of ways of doing it and that's the the, the the way and i think more businesses now have more examples in their in their kind of sectors that it's working and are more likely to kind of jump on that as well so i, I do think that kind of barrier is slowly closing you've got your kind of a few uh, CEOs that are probably stuck in their ways in that sense um, and whether those businesses will be around who knows and, and obviously SMEs it's a completely different story and we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about them as well um, because the resources are much more constrained but I, I think certainly that that point where sustainability is not in the boardroom is becoming less of an issue the the main issue is is once it's in the boardroom how do you do stuff tangibly and with the right intentions and the right outcomes.
Mm, definitely. And we're going to be looking at yeah case study whereby sustainability is profitability and where you can do, as you say, not just the doomism, but the imagining a sustainable future with Circa 5000 after the break. So join us after the jingle for that. And welcome back to the ED podcast for our Climate Finance Week 2022 special, focusing on the role of the individual investor in accelerating the transition to a sustainable future. Matt, how are we holding up in the heat? Nearly there. Yeah, nearly there. I'm finding like the, the mornings are absolutely fine. It's the evenings when you're kind of your, your house or your office, or whatever, is just kind of baked in the sun. That that's when it starts to get kind of just hot. Now I need to move away from my conservatory pretty pretty soon I think just to cool down but yeah still going strong it's, it's that and you're at the point of the day where you've had your two liters of water and countless other cold beverages some ice lollies and you're like when will it end <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that's not how I feel about the podcast today um, I should I should make it clear um, so after looking at global returns in part one we're now looking at financial returns and how we can make that add up with sustainability rather than being at odd with it. Um, so there are, as we've said, some great case studies of businesses in which sustainability is completely intertwined with profitability, as Matt mentioned, because sustainability is de-siloed. It's embedded not just in risk, but in innovation and in all other key parts of the business. And one of them in the financial space is Circa 5000, which is a B Corp certified impact investment app with a portfolio that claims only to support businesses with a net positive impact on the world in that they're contributing their fair share or more of their fair share towards the UN's sustainable development goals. Circa 5000's co-founder Tom McGillicuddy describes the brand's approach as no-nonsense, transparent and accessible to the everyday person. So ideal for those put off by sustainability and finance jargon, and for those that are well versed in sustainability, but maybe feeling a bit disillusioned by cases of impact washing in traditional ESG funds in some cases. And Tom is our next guest and is on hand to talk us through how he can make that approach work in real life. So let's play that talk in full. Yes, hello, a very good morning to you, Tom, and thank you so much for joining our podcast today. How are you and whereabouts in the world are you dialing in from? I'm, I'm very good, thank you. Um, I'm dialing in from Wigan uh, in Greater Manchester, where I was where I was born and raised, and that I've recently moved back to uh, during lockdown. So uh, yeah, sunny Wigan today. A, a sentence we don't say that often. <laughs> <don't think. laughs> um, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about all things Circa 5000 on our Finance Week um, podcast. Um, for those who are listening at home and are unfamiliar with the business, I feel like the obvious place to start would be with a little bit of, of an introduction to set the scene. Yeah, um, so Circa 5000 is uh, an impact investment app um, for uh, for retail investors um, of any level of experience, really. Um, and uh, what we do is we get people to invest in the themes uh, of people and planet. Um, so businesses that are that are developing solutions to the big uh, the big issues that uh, are underpinned by uh, environmental or, or, or social uh, needs and causes, um, but it's uh, but it's for for return. It's an investment app, so we're trying to achieve at least market level um, investment returns 
but by investing in companies that are doing something really noticeably, uh, measurably positive for the world at the same time. So we have about 160,000 customers in the UK um, and uh, they're based all over the UK and we've been around for around about three years now. Great. And, and what were you doing in your past life before co-founding this business? Yeah, so co-founded it with Matt Latham. Um, Matt and I met um, 11 years ago now on uh, the first day of a Barclays graduate scheme uh, in London. Matt's from Liverpool um, and we worked together for a few years. And then I w w left and joined Wellington Management, the US asset manager. Um, and whilst I was at Wellington, um, I uh, helped start the Wellington Global Impact Fund, which is their um, impact investment strategy um, that now has around two or three billion dollars uh, in it. So I was part of the the founding, you know, three or four people that started that fund. Um, did that for four years, um, and then 2018-19 uh, we left we left our traditional finance jobs to uh, to start Circa 5000. Excellent, and it seems to be going um, pretty well. I actually got word of the company recently for being one of the top rated B Corps, so it must be quite a nice time for you guys. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's going roughly going to plan. Obviously, the B Corp, um, the B Corp li list is powerful. Being at the top of that is quite powerful because people are looking. Increasingly, people are looking to to either buy things from or you know put their money with companies that that, that are they're in keeping with their own values. So I think a lot of people find out about us through through being a B Corp on that list. And obviously, recently the top five percent in the world got announced, and we were fortunate enough to be in that top five percent. So yeah, very grateful. Um, so. Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good time at the moment. Of course, and I mean we could go into yeah how you complete an assessment as a financial company, but I actually wanted to talk about the portfolio um, yeah. and how that works because I was given some briefing notes about circa five thousand and told that um, as you mentioned the portfolio is built out of companies that are doing good for people and the planet, um, and the frame one of the key frameworks that you guys are using to measure that is the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to get a feel for why you guys chose that as a framework and how that might be different to some of the other frameworks used to create impact investing funds or maybe even e ESG funds more generally. Yeah, so I suppose for, for us, the, 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 the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, are kind of like an output framework. So they, we don't use them to build the, the 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 portfolios. I'll come back to that in a second. But we but whatever we are investing in is always aligned with one, two, three, or more of those of those UN SDGs. But by the nature of what we invest in. Um, so if you look at it on the uh, on the input on the creation side, we we use something quite closely linked to the impact management project IMP, which is impact uh, investing kind of industry standard or what's becoming the industry standard for looking at impact and measuring impact. So that's heavy on the input side. And then by the very nature of what we do, and if I put it in like normal non-impact or non-investment languages, we're trying to invest in companies whose business model, i.e. what they sell, the product or service, is directly linked to one or more big world problems. Now, if you look at it through that lens, and that's the that's the that's the real real English kind of way of framing what impact investing, I think, actually is, then you're always going to be linked to one or more at the UN SDGs on the on the other side. So obviously, UN SDGs have been put together because these are the big pressing global issues across across people and planet, as kind of uh, brought about and researched by the UN. And there needs to be, you know, trillions of capital dedicated towards solving them. So um, all of our investments that we make are linked to one or more of them. And that's just an output of how we create our 
our portfolios effectively. So that's the key output that, that we look at, um, but it doesn't determine where we go. It's just the output. That makes sense. I was going to ask because about about the SDGs, a lot of people say it's great to have that vision, um, but in some areas it's hard to measure alignment. So some of them are fairly obvious, like we need to reduce food waste by X amount yeah. by 2030. Others are harder to measure. Um, how do you quantify collaboration <laughs> or peace? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah. Sorry, oh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, so I think it... you go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, like, yeah, one of them is, you know, reduce poverty. It's very, you know, not many companies in the world are selling that product, you know, or that service. Now, they may do something that kind of goes towards that, but some of them are a lot less direct. And that's why they were never intended to, to be an investment framework themselves. They're obviously, they are the big problems that we're trying to address. We're trying to eradicate poverty in all its forms, but that's not really an investable framework or an investable theme. Um, and so that's why they're not a direct input into our process and more of an output from our process. That makes complete sense. Um, as a non-finance person, I'm minded to say, well, why not? Um, but obviously that's a very uh, existential question. Yeah. Um, Instead, I think I'd like to maybe ask about, yeah, SDG washing, um, which mm. has obviously been said that how do you stop cherry picking? How do you make sure that businesses are playing their fair share? And what do you do if you perhaps choose a company that creates this great product or service that helps customers reduce their climate impact? And then they have a big ethical scandal or some other scandal about their operations or supply chain. So I'd love to ask a bit more about your selection and en engagement process and how that can help avoid SDG washing. Yeah, um, great. It's a great question. We have a, there's a similar phrase, which is like greenwashing in the in the investment in the investment industry, which is people making their investments look green, but they're not they're not really. Um, so I think for us, what we're trying to when we're analyzing companies, when we're building our portfolios and themes, we're looking at companies on a net impact basis. So we are we actively weigh against each other the positives and the negatives of the company. That could be in anything from governance to supply chains, to ethical issues, to how they treat local communities. You know, there's 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 a hundred different areas that we could look at that could be negative. So just because a company is selling a product and service which is good on its own doesn't mean that company overall is the is the most positive impact company. So what we're trying to invest in when we when we go through our processes, companies that are directly solving a world problem through their business model, but also represent a, a, a clear net positive overall as a business. Um, and that's the way that we can avoid greenwashing, SDG washing, or you know whatever way that the investment management industry is uh, is trying to jump on these, these sustainable trends as a marketing ploy um, to, to acquire more customers and assets. That's not what we're interested in. What we're trying to do is, open up everything that we do from an investment process point of view to to uh, to scrutiny um, down to the last company that we invest in the last data point we've used um, and so the, the the net positive impact um, is that is the key way of doing it for us that makes sense like there's been so much talk about yeah ESG washing greenwashing um, in finance recently so many scandals of people looking inside ESG portfolios and seeing companies with yeah, a clearly historic net negative um, Im impact inside those portfolios. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, personally, and this is not necessarily personally, I think it's also a company view, which is ESG is rife for greenwashing because of the very nature of how, of how people use the ESG framework to build um, portfolios. And what you find often with an ESG fund is 
when you look at the top 10 holdings and look, you look behind the label, that you've kind of still got all the same companies that you would have had before. So you've got big tech, you've got all the banks, you may even have the big oil companies in there because oil companies may have good governance, they may have cleaned up some S, S, S social risk. And on a net basis, they, they score quite well, you know, on an on a ESG framework. And that is kind of, it's not what impact investing is. It's a completely different starting point. Our starting point is, is this company selling something which solves a big problem for the world? Um, and ESG can be a component part of what we do, but it is no by no means the driving factor. So I think ESG and greenwashing, people got to watch out for that um, because it's rife within, within that framework. Yeah, I've definitely heard that from several people other than yourself in recent months, Tom. Um, I wanted to come back from one three-letter acronym ESG back to the SDGs, um, really. And I wanted to talk actually so about the role of impact investing specifically. So as you say, when we look at the SDGs, um, they're, they're global and the the level of some of these commitments is massive. When we're talking about the financing of the whole framework over over years, it's it's in the trillions. Um, obviously, not all of this funding will be looking for a return. A lot of it will be public, either nationally or internationally agreed. But I wanted to get your view on what role impact investing plays in that global shift with different kinds of finance. Yeah, a, a huge role because without it, you're relying purely on government and charity to fill the entire gap um, towards those towards solving those problems, and that's just not feasible in any meaningful time frame. You know, I think the the UN the UN put out it was 30 trillion, I think, was the gap um, when they first put the SDGs out. I'm not sure if that's changed since or they've amended that, but there's a huge gap. So I think what impact investing can prove, um, and what we want to prove, is that um, that you can that people can earn fantastic returns by trying to solve these problems at the same time. And if you can tie those two things together and present there is profit, there is a commercial motive, and it can be done in an ethical way, as well as solving these big problems, then you can attract a massive amount of private capital towards investing in these companies, in these portfolios, in these themes. And that can ultimately help us accelerate the solution to those big problems that the UN has identified. Because if we purely leave it to the, the realm of, of government and charity, it will take too long. And, and some of the issues, we don't have an infinite amount of time to solve. So I think that's the role that impact investing can can provide is catalyzing a much faster transition to the solution of, of these issues. Communicating them as well, I think, is something you mentioned um, there. So you talk to the average member of the public about net zero. They might not know what it means. You talk about 30 trillion. That's unfeasible <laughs> to, um, to most of us. I can't even conceptualize that to be completely um honest so is this a good way to get the average member of the public to think that you know i do have a role to play and this is how i could have a, a decent amount of impact like this is worth my time yeah 30 trillion sounds so abstract doesn't it it's like a meaningless like meaningless number and set of words yeah so i mean original founding vision of the business so matt and i just to go back for a second and i'll come back to it was we started work at barclays and we came from a background where none of our family and friends invested and none of them thought they could so the, the, the attraction for us for impact investing was not only do we think it's the right thing to do and the future of the industry, but we also always thought it was a way of tackling the financial inclusion issues that we saw from people feeling like investing is not for them, they feel excluded, etc. Because you can frame investing in a way that seems totally understandable by, by linking people's money, their returns and their future with an improving world for everybody, an improving economic situation for everybody. And it actually helps people understand how 
finance functions, capital markets. Capital markets is obviously a jargony term, but the flow of money around the world into companies who produce good things for the world. And over time, they earn money and you earn money because you've invested in them and linking them to issues that people care about, not just climate related issues, but healthcare, housing, education, banking access, internet access. These are things that people really understand more so than traditional finance, which is just risk and return. And so we always felt like impact investing was uniquely positioned in its ability to get people to understand um, in what investing is. And if you can do that, you can get more people to invest, which helps solve the problems underlying the companies much, much more quickly. So that was the founding kind of hypothesis of the business and what we've been trying to prove out. And I think what we've seen over time is the more you connect people to the actual underlying impact of the companies, the more they invest, the more they uh, they invest for the long term and the more they understand what they're actually doing with the money, which I think is quite powerful for people. Big thank you to Tom once again for being our second guest. So now we're going to turn to a different kind of investing after looking at impact investing in various forms and turning to crowdfunding. Um, and crowdfunding is something that's obviously been invented in mine and Matt's lifetime and had a boom in popularity, especially in recent um, years. So in North America alone, $12.7 billion is raised through crowdfunding every year, according to Fundera. And by 2027, Statista estimates that that figure will rise to 73.9 billion. And that at that point, the global crowdfunding market will be worth 25.8 billion. So a massively growing market, sometimes not all for, for good reasons, to be honest. A lot of the money that goes through crowdfunding goes to medical causes and other personal causes. So people go on there if they need money for surgery for their sick pet or a funeral for a loved one or repairs to their home. But it's also increasingly becoming a way for small businesses to access finance. And the good news is that it's proving particularly lucrative for small businesses with sustainability built in as Crowdcube's Chief Commercial Officer, Matt Cooper, is on hand to discuss with me today. Crowdcube recently announced that investment into green and sustainable companies stood at 5.5 million through its platform in 2017, um, but 41.4 million from the year from March 2021 through April 2022. So a significant scaling up. Um, but of course, how is Crowdcube defining green and sustainable? And how is it working to support more of that on its platform? So let's listen to that interview with Matt to find out. Hello, Matt. Thank you so much for joining our Climate Finance Week podcast. How, how are we today and whereabouts are we dialing in from? Hey, Sarah. Great to talk to you. Um, I'm dialing in from the UK, uh, just north of London, um, uh, enjoying, or no, actually not enjoying the, uh, the, the warm weather. It's a little bit too on the warm side. Uh, but working from home today uh, rather than travelling into into the city of London. Yeah, seeing things like train tracks buckling and catching fire doesn't really fill one with much confidence about getting the train. <laughs> exactly. The British are not prepared for this sort of heat, are we, if we are we're not. honest? But hopefully you are prepared for our discussion today, which is all about Crowdcube and sustainable investment. Um, and I think that obviously I know a little bit about Crowdcube from briefing notes, but for those that are listening that aren't necessarily aware, um, it'd be great to start with a brief introduction, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Crowdcube is the, the world's largest um, and it was actually the world's first um, retail investment platform. Uh, we enable uh, private companies to raise investment from retail investors um, and their 
communities of fans and, and, and customers. Um, we've been doing this for about 10 or 11 years. Um, when we, we started on this journey, no one had done it before. Um, and to be honest, everyone thought we were a little crazy and it would go away and it was a fad, but it's grown relatively consistent, consistently as an industry um, over those last 10 years. And essentially what we do is um, enable private companies um, to raise uh, primary or secondary capital um, from a big international base of retail investors. Um, we've done that to the tune of about a billion pounds sterling, um, so circa 1.3, 1.4 billion euros. Um, and we've amassed a retail investor community of about 1.2 million retail investors um, from 125 different countries. Um, so what started um, as, a, as a teeny tiny business um, to help underrepresented founders raise capital and underrepresented retail investors invest in private companies has become something a lot bigger um, over that time. Great, thanks for the overview. And specifically, I want to focus on those companies that you help that are classed as sustainable. And actually, I got the pitch for you to come speak on this episode with the publication of some new stats from Crowdcube. Um, the company recently revealed that more than six times the number of businesses that it classes as green and or sustainable used its platform to source investment last year than in 2017. Um, and I wanted to get a feel on, obviously, this is an emerging field. Edie's been working in sustainable business since well, best part of 25 years, and it's still a, an emerging field. So how do you go about determining whether a business is green or, or sustainable? And how do you encourage that sort of business to use Crowdcube? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, firstly, if I can be clear, we are sector agnostic. So we enable businesses of all shapes and sizes from all over the UK and Europe in every imaginable sector, from craft beer to solar energy or tidal energy to raise capital from their community of, of fans or users or customers and our investor community. But what we're able to look at is the data behind that activity on the marketplace. And what that data has been telling us consistently is that um, we are seeing a huge rise in retail investor appetite to invest in green or sustainable or ESG focused um, uh, companies. And the more investor appetite we see, um, for those types of businesses, the more businesses of that type we see. We're a real beneficiary of that kind of flywheel effect on a marketplace with the more sellers of something, the more buyers you have, the more buyers of something, the more sellers you onboard. Um, and so what we're not doing is going out and, and exclusively um, uh, targeting uh, green or sustainable businesses, but by a process of natural selection, those companies that do have um, a sustainability agenda or are focused on, on uh, solving the climate crisis or profit with purpose, um, they tend to bubble to the top in terms of the amount of interest they see from retail investors. Um, I think we've I think we've 10x'd the amount of capital um, going through the platform being invested into green businesses over the last four or five years. And it really does show that um, uh, retail investors are, are kind of voting or investing partly with head and partly with heart. Um, and every time I talk to a founder of a green or sustainable business that works with us, the thing that perhaps shocks them the most is the level of advocacy they see for the solution they're trying to like imagine in the world or, or bring to um, bring to existence from the 
the, the crowd investors that they um, onboard as a result of their raise on Crowdcube. That's great to hear. And I wanted to get your views on whether this is solely like a really positive sign that investors want more from companies in terms of sustainability. They want to pick um, companies like, as you mentioned, renewable energy or like B Corp certified craft beer. Um, but is it also a bit of a negative? Could it mean that there's a gap in finance from other other sources that could be helping these businesses? I, I don't necessarily think it points to a gap in uh, financing in the kind of what we refer to as the offline uh, world. I think what it does definitely point to is that more and more of these types of companies, I mean, you mentioned B Corp there, we're a prolific funder of, of B Corp businesses across the UK and the EU now. I think what it does point to is the fact that these businesses are looking at the successes that their peer group are having when crowdfunding, and they're turning to that almost before, or at least at the same time, as they're exploring other um, pools of potential investment or capital. I think if you'd asked me that question five or six years ago, we perhaps would have been at the back of the queue or an afterthought for some of these companies. But now we're right at the top in terms of their thinking about um, when and if they're going to raise capital, because it's been proven that there's this massive retail investor appetite for these types of businesses. And quite frankly, we think that's an amazing thing. You know, these are companies that are very mission driven and mission focused. They're generally doing things that should benefit humanity and society going forward. Um, and the more of those opportunities that we can bring to our investor base, the better as far as Crowdcube is concerned. That makes sense. And you mentioned a word there, mission driven, um, sometimes also called purpose led and all, all matter of other terms. And when we sometimes think about the sort of people that might be investing in that sort of company research sometimes shows that it's it's millennials it's gen z it's the younger um people but you guys also kindly sent us some figures and facts about who's using crowdcube as um as a person providing the investment um revealing that it's actually those over 65 who have the largest percentage of their portfolio in these businesses that are classed as green or sustainable so i'd love to get your thoughts on why you think that is, because when you talk about things like, yeah, purpose-led business, sort of younger people come to mind, also tech platforms, younger people usually um, come come to mind. So what do you think is behind that trend, Matt? Yeah, I think there's a few things to, to unpack there, all of which are, are pretty interesting. And I have a couple of personal views as well. Um, the first thing is, uh, in terms of the number of investors um, in a, a green or, or sustainable um, uh, investment campaign, it's likely that the sort of 25 to 35 age group will be greatest in terms of number, but they will definitely be lower or underrepresented in terms of the amount of capital invested, which tends to be an older demographic. Now, that could be for a number of reasons. One, the older demographic often has more disposable income to, de to deploy in um, a varied investment, personal investment portfolio. Um, particularly with the kind of cost of living crisis um, that we're, we're seeing at the moment and inflation running running rampant across the UK and the EU. Um, I think there's definitely a sense that um, the sort of over 55s or over 60s are pretty focused on what they can do to impact the world or the future that their children and grandchildren are growing up in. And one of the ways they can do that is to diversify their investment portfolio into, um, into private companies that are trying to do meaningful, important things um, to address things like climate change. 
Um, so what most companies see when they raise capital is this very, very broad church of, of people from Gen Z and millennial who might be a lower investment amount, but a higher level of advocacy and kind of net referral and promotion amongst their peer group with a much older demographic who are, you know, perhaps recently retired or coming to the to the end of their professional careers who have capital to deploy and who want to do something meaningful with that capital alongside their other um, perhaps more traditional investments. That makes sense. Definitely the case of yeah, numbers versus actual amount of capital and how that's um, allocated. And something that I think we've seen across all age groups is that people of all age groups seem to be more interested in where their money is is going and whether that's sustainable. There have been lots of campaigns on this over over recent years in the UK. The biggest ones probably make my money matter, highlighting how it's pretty hard to see this information through in traditional investment. Um, avenues and even then you might get a really really vague description like oh your money's invested in China in the energy sector oh your money's invested in Australia in the fast-moving consumer goods um, sector so I wanted to get your your views on whether you think people are looking for that awareness on where their money is investing given that using something like CrowdCube really lets you pick and see where it goes. Yeah I, I think that there, there is a ginormous multi-trillion dollar industry um, in terms of ESG investing that you and I and, and everybody else has um, the money that they squirrel away in pensions and, and ISAs and stocks and shares, um, um, uh, wrapper the ISAs over the course of a year um, is deployed. Um, but you are very removed from the end recipient of that investment. And, and I think one of the things that has resonated, particularly during the pandemic, actually, was people were yearning for a very real, very direct, um, very personal connection with the underlying investment that they were making. And crowdfunding is fantastic for that. Like you get to see, hear, engage with the founder, the exec team and the, the company directly. You get to buy their product, you get to um, use their service, you get to tell your friends about the fact that you backed this amazing business and that you're delighted to be on the journey and you're really excited about um, the, the difference they're making um, to society or to the, the climate crisis or anything else. So I think we have benefited from a retail investor um, yearning to, to have a more direct involvement with the underlying investment that they're making um, and really feel a personal connection that they can then tell their friends about and they can tell their children about um, that they feel like they're doing something worthwhile and meaningful with that capital that they're looking to deploy. And there's no greater way of doing that than deploying it in a company that is looking to solve the problem that you care about passionately. And do you think that that desire for that connection with the business is going to continue now? You mentioned that obviously lockdown, people wanted that a lot. They had more free time. They wanted to support businesses that were doing good in the community. Now we're probably all a little bit busier um, with, with lockdown lifting. We haven't seen a, a slowdown um, uh, post um, kind of most of the restrictions being taken away um, uh, from the from the effect of the, the pandemic. So the, the acceleration um, in adoption of um, retail investor adoption of crowdfunding that we saw 2019 into 2020 and 2021 has just carried on. 
Um, so I think those habits that perhaps were reinforced and created during that period have stayed um, and they're not going anywhere. Um, we're fortunate that um, the playing field that we operate in has got much larger. Uh, we were traditionally just regulated in the in the UK, um, where the, the financial regulator here has been most progressive in terms of crowdfunding and has been really the leading light for the rest of the financial regulators across the world. Um, but we're now um, the only marketplace in the world to be regulated across the EU. So we're seeing businesses that have um, a, a, an environmental or ethical focus from Spain, from Italy, from the Nordics, from France, from you know, all across Europe, and we're able to plug them into this big global audience of retail investors. And, you know, we think that's a good thing. Um, it's a bigger pool of capital for companies to uh, look to exploit. And it's a more varied uh, and wider range of businesses that are looking to do good things um, that we can put in front of our investor audience. Well, thank you for that overview. And here's hoping that that does keep it up into 2022 and, and beyond. I feel like it's probably also good for businesses to form this connection because it's a way to differentiate yourself with things like businesses moving on online and with people um, having to choose where they shop more carefully. So I've got my fingers crossed personally. Um, Matt, I'm aware we're running out of time for our call. So I'm aware that it's boiling hot. My office is 37, my laptop is telling me. Um, so I will let you get going. And thank you very much for sharing your insight on the podcast today. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to talk. Thanks once again to Matt from Crowdcube, our last but by no means least guest for this episode. I'm surrounded by Matt's. Um, so Matt, Edie, Matt, I'm going to turn back to you and ask the closing question. Are you tempted to have a little dabble in impact investing after Climate Finance Week? Yeah, two of my best friends are called Matt as well, which makes it very <laughs> confusing when we all meet up. Um, uh, to answer your question, am I? I don't. I don't have any money to to to, to in, invest. The joys of being uh, going to university is means you're constantly in debt, and the joys of buying a house that needs that needed renovating for the last two years means that you've any money you have accumulated has gone into that. Um, so maybe in a few years, um, my, my savings account's growing again, but that's probably towards an uh, electric car right now. So probably probably a few years off for me. Um, uh, the, the investing world is just like a, it, it's like a it, it's like a different planet to me. Um, I don't know what weighs up, what weighs down. So I would be probably hemorrhaging money pretty quickly if I tried, unfortunately. Well, I'm sure we have people listening that are on that planet and be happy to send you a space telegram. Um, and, and hopefully some people that are listening and undecided and maybe thinking about this a bit more after this week, because that's partly what this week has been about, isn't it? To inform and empower people to take the next step, regardless of where they where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that are listening, you know, we've got our traditional audience of the sustainability um the sustainability teams, I suppose, those with that kind of background or that kind of interest. I'd recommend sending this episode to to your your finance colleagues, um, uh, and you know, because there's a lot of I'd say jargon in here that they'll probably understand uh, through that, and it could be a nice little bridge. You know, we we spoke earlier about silos and kind of getting boardrooms and, and finance departments on board. This might be a nice little olive branch to to kind of extend and, and a way way in in that sense if you are struggling. Mm. I was making like a spider diagram of words to mention for this episode and I had demystifying, simplifying and collaboration. So that sums it up nicely. 
Um, we're just about out of time for this episode, but before we sign off, I want to make sure you know where to access all of our other Climate Finance Week goodies. So we have been publishing loads of exclusive content this week, including an A to Z rundown of key ESG related disclosure frameworks and platforms focusing on the E because that's what we do here at ED. That's our bread and butter. Um, we've had some exclusive blogs from experts, including EY and some really great video interviews, too. So from me, there are video interviews with experts at Bankers for Net Zero and Palladium Group. Matt's also got some written interviews, as he mentioned, he wasn't camera ready last week. Um, so he's got some written interviews instead with organisations, including Scottish Widows. Um, and we've also got that report that we mentioned near the start of this episode, the Climate Finance Primer for COP27. Um, there's also the jewel in the metaphorical crown that is Climate Finance Week, our sustainable investment inspiration sessions. So these are free to watch online sessions originally hosted on Thursday and shortly available to watch on demand. You can tune into those to hear from our sponsors at Inspired, as well as experts from a great array of organisations across the finance space, including Aviva Investors, We Mean Business Coalition and the Green Finance Institute. And you can find all of this great content and more at ed.net forward slash climate dash finance dash week. That's ed.net forward slash climate dash finance dash week. Or you can just go to our homepage ed.net and click events in the top menu and then climate finance week. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how many times I've said finance over the past hour um, or, or so. And um, I'm sure that my brain is now scrambled in the heat and Matt's is too. So I'm going to be bringing this episode to a swift close and this will really be it until we are ready for a relaunch. So thank you very much for listening for today. It's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.